we want to uh, explain to you the developmental idea of a swamp a little bit. Some of you may have collected or read that small uh, short report on the Institute's idea of the swamp as a common work system. So just get a page up, common work. In your notes you'll see a little handwritten thing called palimpsest, but we're calling it common work because it's an easier name. <laughs> permaculture, palimpsest or common work. Now um, it doesn't matter what sort of land you've got over an acre or half an acre uh, but up to whatever thousand acres you cannot, you, you, you simply cannot run complex system with one or two people. There's, uh, there's two possibilities in polycultures in, in really high production use of landscape. Possibility one is you place it in such a sort of polyculture that one animal can gather it. That is, you set up a really intensive 3,000 species plant polyculture which a pig can gather. So you, you create a polycultural system with a monocultural product, right? Well, it's not a monocultural product, with a single product. In that case, you need an animal intervener. And that is very, very suitable for remote areas where there are not many people. So you can set up a really stable plant complex for chickens or for pigs and take as your product the chicken or the pig or the sheep or the cow. A cow forage forest could be you know, up to 20,000 species of plants uh, running from the herb layer to the trees. When you come in close to settlement, and that's where common work works, up against urban areas or up against uh, small towns like Stanley, <coughs> or, you know, in Rowlands Plains where you have a, a scatter of hippies uh, settled in there, or Nimbin, you know, where you've got sort of a pair of hip little bright eyes looking out of the bush, or uh, Waitalaba, Waitalaba, you know, where you've got a hundred residents, you can set up a common work system for the landscape. Now this enables you to develop the same very rich and stable polyculture but only a few people look after each section of it and that's what makes the polyculture possible. You often get the question fired at you, oh well you know I'd like to see my farm ecologically stable but I can't uh, run chickens, pick apples, do cut flowers and uh, harvest fish and of course you can't. You can't do that. A farmer cannot do that. You can't split yourself ten ways. You'd be going like a bat out of hell and making, you know, $50,000 a year and have no time to yourself. What's the point? What's the life do you want to lead? You know, you can make a $200,000 a year and go like mad, you know. what they're doing. No, they're not. What they're actually doing, the present usage of land is based on this premise. You own it, you individually own it, and you go for one crop. And you just run a little routine for that crop, you know, boom, 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 boom. You know, spray drench, shear, you know, knock off. Uh, and that is land at its least possible use, and that's Australia. You can look at it, and that's what it is. It's land at its least possible usage. Now, the other approach is to take the land and design the land, design the hell out of the land for its own sake. 
for the sake of the land and not of anybody else. So what you do is you look at your land and you say, well, we don't want to cultivate the steep areas. We want to maximise water surface because that is stable situation for the land and the water that we maximise uh, is useful. Drought proofs the rest of the land. So you work out the land at its best use, highest level of use. Its highest level of use is its highest yield potential. And that does mean uh, maximising water, which is by far the highest yield potential of any landscape. So you go to and you build all these dams and uh, islands in the dams and um, you build Chinampa if it's marshy. And uh, Now you know what you've done. You've put in the highest production potential for the land and the land is in its uh, best shape. You can't erode it. You've also put in quite a lot of capital. So it's unlikely anyone's ever going to undo this work. Because what they undo, they're burning money. Now, given that you have proportions in water, in chinampa, in forest, in excellent pasture or meadowland or even cropland here and there which you can water all the time and it won't erode away because you've got windbreaks in there, uh, you have a real complex system going. Just to run uh, an acre or two of chinampa is a full-on job. In the terms of common work, you need a settlement which you could either build uh, under the present cluster housing guidelines or which already exists. It's already a town or a city nearby and people want to work on the land or they want to access the land. Now, the, having designed that, what you best do now, I guess, is let a lot of transparent overlays fall over that map and then you work out how many livings you put into it. Now, a living has to be judged for some local reason. So what we do now is try to maximise livings. And here it would be ten to $12,000 a year in Stanley. It'd be a little more in Sydney, right? In fact, Stanley, that's excessive. Sydney, it's de deficient for a family to live on. So how many of those livings are in, in that landscape design? Now, first of all, before you decide how many you've got there, you better say what sort of livings are available. Livings are available from primary production, primary output on the land. You can sell flowers or eels or fish or yabbies. By the way, it's all pretty well worked out for you. You, you, almost all these things are available out of the literature. You buy an ordinary agricultural department book, it gives you a return per acre of a crop like artichokes, pretty accurately, average yields, and you would go look at an average yield. And uh, what the current market price is is well known, and your, a fair estimate of your income per acre is available. The same with your fish. If you want a ballpark figure, it's eight acres for yabbies, one sixteenth of an acre of an eel crop is equivalent to eight acres of yabbies and so on and so on and so on. Uh, so your livings are pretty well worked out by the known returns per acre of that particular crop, which is already in hand. A little bit of additional work and uh, 
The additional work consists of taking a single possible product like Yabby's, working out the area suitable to Yabby's, then adding up the area, getting the accurate uh, amount of money you expect back from that, and it can always be modest, and you would see how many Yabby livings lie in the water that you've managed to get on the land. Uh, Yabbies notoriously don't interfere with other fish and actually add to the production of other fish because they're a detritus feeder and a good converter. Uh, therefore, you might get a, a larger quantity of yellow belly because you've got yabbies than if you didn't have yabbies. And of course, as you know, you get a much larger quantity of yabbies and yellow belly if you have ducks. And uh, if you take the free-ranging area for ducks, you could say how many duck flocks will run on the land and, and again, either as meat or eggs, the livings are easily accessible. You can uh, predict the number of eggs per flock from extant flocks. Now, so you have a number of primary production livings. You then uh, have a second set of livings. Of those primary products, what are processable and what gain is made from processing. For instance, if we're producing rainbow trout, you can have livings from the eggs of the trout and from the trout, and also you have livings, and they can be wholesaled at ordinary wholesale rate to a smokehouse, and you can sell smoke trout. What is the gain in income with the difference between a trout unprocessed and a trout smoked, you might find that you upgrade your living considerably by the next step. The people who grow the trout don't want to be bothered with smoking the trout, it's a bloody nuisance. Uh, now, if you want to then grind the trout into a paste after you've smoked it and put it in bottles and sell it for smoked trout pâté, you're really looking at money. Yeah, The trout that was worth a dollar is now looking towards more like 20 buck trout. Therefore, you have uh, a set of processing livings, primary livings, processed livings. Now, your third set of livings are service livings. Given that you have, for instance, 20 processed livings and maybe, and this always proliferates, 20 primary livings and 40 processed livings, you have 60 livings, that is, 60 families can exist off this land. How many services do those families need and how many livings are in those services? What services will they need? How would you like the energy supply job for 60 families? Yeah, what would that be worth to you per annum? Just on a quarter of a million dollars, I think. Therefore, there are another 24 livings just in giving energy to those families, or another 10 livings in giving energy to those families, in organising their energy system. What else will those families need? Tools and transport and, transport and repairs. There's a living in repairing. Uh, there's a living in uh, running the transport system for those families. And that means that you set up a vehicle leasing system to them, which gives them a tax deduction. What else do you have to have when you've got a vehicle? What else do you have to get annually apart from petrol? Fuel. You can fuel the vehicles. You may find living in vehicle fueling system, alcohol production, spare parts, 
a servicing living to spare parts, repairs, insurance. How much is your car insurance? Yeah, 82. What, what can you do better than that? Yeah, 80 to $300 per vehicle and you need a certain modicum of vehicles per number of people. There's a, there's a good living in running the insurance system for vehicles and for housing and so on. What are the other common service livings in a community? Banking. In this town you'll see four banks. There are 560 people, most of whom are elderly. Building shelters. Entertainment. There's a modest living in entertainment. Uh, and in fact, our own little group makes a modest living out of it. Andrew can tell you how modest it is. <laughs> yes, uh, medical, preventive and preventive and, and up to, you know, sort of a specialist medical level can be run within a community and there are very good models for it. And it's generally run on the basis of a contribution from community members if they want to be in such a program. Preventive medicine uh, involves examination of structural materials in homes, whether you've got asbestos ceilings, this one doesn't have, I don't think, whether you have, you know, shortwave radiation, cooking everybody within the house, easily detected with a little solid-state rod. Preventive medicine means general attention to the things that permeate communities that are easily measured. The whole bloody kit costs you about 200 bucks and you can run around and just check everyone out. So you get rid of uh, a lot of the cancers this way. Then it also extends to non-specialist medical care right up to specialists. And for that, people will pay you a very reasonable uh, monthly amount to stay healthy. If they get sick, they should deduct it. <laughs> so you've got service livings. Uh, that includes education and, of course, part of the education lies on the site, doesn't it? Also, if you're very smart at doing this, what else do you become? You become a learning institute at home, but, but that isn't a very good thing to be. You have a very good extension capacity to other communities for designing their common work systems and their legal and financial setups, carrying with you this time first-hand experience to tell them, you know, what snags are going to strike and so on. Therefore, you have uh, external living. Also, once you've got all these processed products, what do you now have to involve yourself in? Marketing. Marketing and trade. Marketing and trade. And it, you can generally put that down at whatever your processed value is, you add 100% yeah. as an income on the marketing and trade. Broadly speaking, there's not very many retailers today that don't demand 50% markup. So it's 100% on value. And don't let them kid you that they only get 15% markup, the bastards don't. You know, how much do you sell your uh, daffodils for per bunch? Yeah, there you are, there's a 200% markup. <coughs> so therefore, quite obviously, there's an enormous income potential in the marketing of your modest products. Yeah, how can you pay 16% interest from a credit union and lend the money at 10% because you're lending it and getting it back and lending it and getting it back and the actual interest you earn is 26%. Same, same you know, you've got this modest 15% markup, but depending on the number of times you buy Vegemite during the year and the more the better, uh, you're actually looking at one whack of a markup.
because you're making the same money over 12 months go over and over and over and every time you're making 15% on it every time you turn it over. So it's 15, 30, 45, 65, you know, mind-boggling percentage, right? Now, so uh, there's a very large uh, area of trade and market involved. Four goods surplus to your system. And let's face it, you could only eat so much trout pâté. What does this mean? If you now put your livings at, at primary processing and service livings, and you put them out here, and if we allow $12,000 a living, we can roughly, um, not too roughly, fairly accurately score off the potential number of incomes from your 1,000 acres or 50 acres. Now, uh, it's not very nice to spend all your life grinding up smoked salmon and stuck it into pots. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. So the, the extremely sensible thing to do is to break up the livings into sectors. If eight acres of yabbies supplies a family with $12,000 or a person, maybe we would enjoy spending a third of our time uh, or catching one third of the yabbies or a quarter of the yabbies. And then uh, the rest of the time we might like to distill uh, some of the eucalypt oil so we're having uh, four days a year yabba catching and two days a year in distillation, giving us a quarter of the eucalypt oil income. And then we might, for the rest of our time, act as the insurance clerk for the vehicle fleet. So now what you have as an actual life experience is a portfolio of livings. So given that you have a third or a, do it in quarters, a quarter of that living, a quarter of that living and a quarter of that living and a quarter of a living at something which may be highly individual like writing books or carving wood which is just purely personal and off-site, you now have a portfolio of occupations. When you can have a portfolio of occupations for the first time in your life you'll discover that you have defined how you want to live. You're no longer a cause to go to work by anybody. You're not defined simply as an architect, simply as a gardener. You now self-define your own occupation. And you may organise some mobility between occupations so that occasionally you can give away well, this quarter and take up another one. Because this whole thing is a dynamic and there's no re reason to run the same crop all the time, the yabby people might say, look, we've got this eight acres of yabby water, we would do better if we put two acres of yabby water into taro and made poi. So you switch your occupation and become a taro grower for a while and so on. Well, I, I think one thing to do is to keep the people off the swamp. You don't... Uh, want to live on the land and, and live off the land. I think you just, you're falling into the same error as a, as a total society who has overrun the 11% of good lands that we could have made livings from. If you want to come to priorities, there's one outstanding priority. The first living that you, or the first livings that you consider <coughs> establishing are those livings which enrich subsequent livings. Now, and a very good example for that is either ducks or bees, right? 
No matter what you're growing in water, ducks are a priority because of their manurial input and subsequent increased product of the water. No matter what sort of seed or fruit you are growing, bees are a priority because without bees, your total crop of seed or of fruit is pretty insignificant. So you have what I would call uh, almost necessitous livings, of which ducks and bees are two real good examples, or chickens and bees. Given that you put those in on the land, it's very easy now to get a high product orchard if, if you already had the chickens there and the bees. Now there are livings uh, which obviously have their area, livings which are area defined, livings which have no area, bees, the bees have a permeate all other livings, <coughs> livings which are not related to area at all, to it the service and processing livings, and livings which can thread through the situation, livings which have a path through the situation. So there are those sort of livings, and you may find others. There's livings which needs a defined area, to wit a crop of garlic. A living which follows a track, to wit bee forage or flower cutting. Livings which are off-site and unrelated to site. You select, with a few friends, what you would like to do. Uh, you say to somebody, you know, let's go halves in the garlic, in half an acre of garlic, right? Because an acre of garlic is about $30,000. Therefore, it represents, uh, in our terms, three livings. Therefore, six of you could take one-sixth of it. You would all have to work it or you don't get any of it. And you have to work one-sixth of it. That is, you can divide it up as you wish, one-sixth of the area or one-sixth of the time. The only income you get out of this whole situation is if you do something. It's obvious bludger-proof. It's a bludger-proof situation. You don't have to work very hard, maybe, uh, I think, five days a year, but you have to put, put, it, put in your five days a year. Uh, if you want to leapfrog uh, the sales and service and direct sell garlic, then your proportionate living drops your proportionate area drops sharply because you're your own retailer. But if you want to give somebody else a living, you just wholesale the garlic off, and then they get a living. One thing is for sure, you don't, out of this system, earn 20000 a year if 12000 is a fair income. The idea is to maximise livings, not maximise personal wealth. Nobody would stop you going off the other 360 days a year and becoming wealthy. But you don't make wealth off a common work model. What you make is a fair living. It enables you to travel, eat well, live well, have lots of products, lots of friends, be in relation to a lot of people and be an important member of your community because you're being counted on in four areas. Where did you get from? I evolved it in answer to the question, how can we complicate this farm because no one could run such a farm? You couldn't even harvest it. And that's true, you cannot. So, obviously, what you say, well, it needs more of you to harvest it. Then I found it in operation. I found it in operation by a Quaker group running a farm in southern England near Kent. I called it Palimpsest. They had called it Common Work. I adopted their name because it seemed such a sensible name. I couldn't think of a name for it. It's a new concept. This stuff's in your book? Yeah. 
What did palimpsest come from? The palimpsest is an ancient painting over a painting. You use the same canvas, painted a new picture, then painted another picture and another picture. So the, the same area had lots of pictures lying one on top of the other. You just overpaint it. In this case, what we're painting on there is living. Now, we'll just sidestep very briefly into the problems of community. There are three problems uh, that are outstanding, uh, and if you've been in the community, you'll recognise all of them. Problem number one is meetings, 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 meetings. These are the greatest toil of a community. Problem number two is consensus. This is the greatest time waster in community. And problem number three is love and affection for each other because no one can do that, it's inhuman. Now all of those are neatly got rid of here. The meeting, last meeting we had, uh, had a proposal in front of it that we have no more meetings. It was unanimously carried and therefore by a common consensus of the whole group, meetings themselves were abolished. The last consensus we had was that we should never again try and reach consensus and that was unanimously agreed. Therefore by consensus we will never reach consensus. And as far as love and affection goes, we decided that was very much on whether you counted on someone to be in place. You counted on somebody to be in place. That is, you, it was important to you that the other person was functioning and there. That people were important to you. Now you see that the common work model covers all of this because no more than three people, and we think at most four, actually have a say in any one activity and if you can't agree with three people you can always change one of them. So you don't have to meet with three people. Two are a quorum. End of meetings. Consensus is out because nobody else has a say in your living. That's totally autonomous. You have the bloody ducks and you don't want anybody else's comment on those ducks. Piss off. Go back to your bees. <laughs> You don't walk up to the beekeeper and tell him how to run bees. Whether he makes it or not is his affair, not yours. And don't forget, if he doesn't make it in bees, he'll make it in his other three livings or somewhere. But if you're alive, then you want a beekeeper, right? And as soon as he fails to keep bees, then the living is open. And if you knew how to do it better, you'd hop right in there and do it with somebody else. <laughs> well, you should keep your bloody nose out of it because it's not your affair anyhow. If he reckons he's making a garvey, as far as he's concerned, he's making a garvey. As long as you see an occasional bee on your flowers, you're quite happy. Right, so consensus is out, meetings are out, and what you have is a set of small, totally independent livings which are totally owned for that period that people do them. When they're not doing them, they're totally open. They automatically relapse <coughs> and become vacant. With with meetings sort of being abolished, um, like if you've got a community uh, and you're trying to sort of all put in something to the community, whether it's ducks, one guy doing bees, or one guy doing ducks, uh, you're looking at, or should I say, are you not looking at a plan for the whole community, a design concept? Then does that not entail a meeting or? No. What does it entail? It designs a living for a set of designers. 
not your bloody affair how it's designed, it's the designer's affair. But then that's assuming the designers have the knowledge and expertise. Oh, well, you don't get fools for designers, do you? I mean, you try not to. And also, of course, as far as the design of the first layout goes, um, not only is it set up and overlaid and publicly visible so that everybody can look at it, it's basically a community plan, but the design can be altered by any of the groups if they see a better way. So they come in, sit down with the design group and <coughs> alter the design so it doesn't interfere with anybody else but suits their purposes better. No problem. And when you look at a, at a, a good set of overlays, it's no assumption because you either have an area or a way or the whole area. If there's ever a case of a community decision, don't do it. No community that I know of can make a decision. That's been proved so many times we don't have to say it. Yeah. An individual or two individuals can make a decision. You know, no community would ever get together to fly the Atlantic. Now, I, the sort of person who wants to make a community decision is usually a dictator. They're either a no dictator or a yes dictator. And more commonly, they are a no dictator. When a community meets to say, shall we do this, there's always a bastard that says no. And of course, the whole community can't do it because somebody says no. It's the power of veto, which that's what prevents the functioning of the United Nations, right? So, are you saying that, like, say, over a large area of the community, you've got, say, two or three people doing a design layout for the whole area, then you've got smaller areas where you get each individual in their own designers? The community would do very well to employ a set of designers for the original common work model the best people they could get hold of. Some of them made, made by agreement lie within the community. At least within the community they ought to be designed collatively. Who should be paid to do the design <coughs> on normal rates? If they don't lie within the community then you contract them and that goes for anything else to do with the common work. If you don't have someone within the community who can handle the accounting as a service then the common work fund pays them. What is the common work fund? We'll get around to it. I think from my experience that what you're saying is right. Um, the problem that we've had having is the communication, like the follow-up communication, having realised that meetings aren't any good and consensus... Have you, put the, have you put the proposition that we shall have no more meetings? You wouldn't find any trouble... <laughs> yeah, you won't have any trouble getting a majority vote on that one. So, suggesting you're throwing democracy straight out the window. No, it isn't. It's putting democracy back to the individual. Democracy is the individual right to operate within their area in relation to a total responsibility to community. You don't have to have four people in the living. Three can manage it. You just cut your area down or, you know, be a little more modest. Two can manage it, one can manage it. The communication is through a publicly available design and a list of those who have taken up the rights. That is the communication. You can check it out. You just can't go on there and squat here and start to keep uh, ducks in somebody's garden. You know, this suddenly throws all landscapes wide open. Nothing to do with the community's landscape. What it throws open is the... Op what it opens up is the right to make a living on land as distinct from ownership of land. It puts those two things clearly apart. Now, as soon as you start to think like this, suddenly 
the space for everybody to make a living is immediately available. There's no more unemployment. As soon as you start to think like this, it's impossible to think of a community with a, a, a worthless member. There's always something to do in relation to community and it's always being paid for by the community. Remember when you start up services, the services need not be restricted to the land group. The services can be offered at large. It can even be offered federally and can be offered globally. Excuse me, but when you mentioned funding in the originally you would have had to have landlading and consensus about originally starting, wouldn't uh, well, we, we arrived by a process of trying to work through meetings of consensus and being absolutely jacked off with it at the idea of having highly independent and responsible small groups in charge of functions that the community needed. Yeah, so there's someone might want to start off on, a, on something like this. I think this is a way to start. Yes, but they'd have to agree, for example, put the funds into getting someone to do a design for them, wouldn't they? Ah, uh, yes, unless they agreed that some of them were adequate designers. They might agree yeah, yeah, either way. Yes. Uh, I didn't <laughs> overcome it all because you have to start everything. It's not overcomable. We will overcome it later, right? We'll overcome it later. It's totally, you don't need any money or any land to start, right? So when you say um, that a living will provide an income, yes. To a household. Your household. To a household. So you're not the type to say that living. Mm-hmm. Um, would that mean that, like, you'd have to get a set place, like, say, two acres, which you could fence off, and what you do in that two acres is yours, and the rest is common ground? Yes, that's right. If, if that's all, uh, but I point out that actually you'd probably have part of two acres, part of a run through or a general system and part of something unrelated to land, part of a trading venture. Let's see now what else we have to do to make this work. Deducting all costs associated with a living, setting it up, and uh, the 12,000 a year that is the living from every living, you, have a, you should have a net profit. That would mean that's every business does have, it's called your prime cost, your capital cost, and your wages deducted and your materials deducted, you have a net profit. That's the normality of business. No business runs without a net profit. Of the net profit, the way that's shown to be very good to do it is 70% of net profit goes to the common work fund. It's attributed to the group, it still belongs to the group, but it is placed in a common work fund as a capital fund for the development of livings. 20% of the net profit goes back to capitalise the living, to capitalise the living directly. That is, the living has been a success, it deserves capital to increase its success. The remaining 10%, bringing up to 100% of net, is tithed. Is tithed? Tithed. T-I-T-H-E-D. It's tithed. The tithe uh, money goes to second level uh, or community services. Those things which may not uh, be uh, able to be paid for. That is research and development which needs to be tithed. Some assistance to medical services needs to be tithed. 
and some assistance to the educational structure of the community needs to be tied. So the tithing can be broken up between research, medical and educational. Now all groups are placing all money in this way. This then becomes a thing called the Common Work Fund, the 70% tithing of net. Uh, within for the six years of starting a Common Work Fund, the 70% will amortise all capital uh, all developmental capital, all prime cost, and all uh, everything that's on the land. That is, it will have paid off the land, paid off all the dam making and fencing, it will have paid off all the machinery, and it will have a large fund in there for further developments, which you can then pass on to other people, or you can keep it going and just make more livings where you are. The 20% continually drifts back into your own business because you need it. You need it for next year's seed, for expansion of your particular thing, maybe to buy a better machine or keep your business updated. The 10% is more than enough to support all community services. You can tithe from an individual or you can tithe from a group enterprise. You know, it doesn't matter how you do it, all you're looking at is net profit of the total endeavour. Everybody having got their living out, their 12,000 out, the rest of it is tithable. Now, by volunteerism, people can pass back their actual wages if they want to. I mean, if you're getting to the stage where everything is provided in your community in terms of health, education and research, then what in the bloody hell do you want 12,000 a year for? You might start to ask the question of yourselves as to what are you going to do with this 12,000 a year when all your food's in your community, your medical, health care, everything, and you might actually tithe back as a matter of volunteerism a proportion of your 12,000 a year. It's up to you. Certainly the 12,000 a year would amortise your house costs very rapidly and particularly as this money is available for housing. So if you're living in a paid off house, if you have a uh, community in which all services are provided by your friend, in which all food is at surplus and in fact you're out trading off food and your energy is provided by your own energy group you might ask yourself what in the hell would I do with 12,000 a year which works down to two or three hundred dollars a week what could I spend it on I can't smoke so many ciggies <laughs> and you might actually tithe part of your 12,000 back into your tithing area or you might not you might be a reasonable high liver and go out and blow it in a great wind up every week or something I don't think you really need to spend anything on travelling. If your travelling isn't self-funded, then you're not much of a trader. You're a lousy trader. As soon as you trade outside country, the government pays your travel cost because it's, oh, it's export incentive grants. So either the, either the state government or federal government pays your travel costs, the job carries your travel costs, or the enterprise takes a deduction off your travelling from its travel costs. Nobody in this community ever pays travel costs. Well, what do you want to do? Teach beekeeping? Or do you want to develop an overseas market for your queen bees or your propolis? Or you want to go and look at somebody else's bees? If you want to go and look at somebody else's bees, your travel cost is deductible from your profit. If you want to go and teach beekeeping, then the job carries the travel. If you want to export queen bees overseas, 
The Commonwealth Government will pay your travel costs for three years until you set up your export market. So the idea of travelling and paying for it is right out the window. Any more than, than paying for land is sane. It's insane. There's a Department of Trade and Industry in every state. They all have travelling officers who will get to you no matter how remote you are and they'll get there at a frequency of about once a month. They're willing to help you in any way possible to set up a product which you can export overseas. They'll fund you to travel overseas to research market uh, for three years. Every time you change product or change country, you can spend another three years travelling to that new country or for that new product. Uh, that will go on for the foreseeable life of both sides of Parliament. They both pledge to continue that program. And uh, you can get at no cost from the Department of Trade and Industry your export incentive grant booklet which tells you exactly how to get there, how to apply for it, and your friendly gentleman, like here it's uh, Chris Ross, who'll be up here on Monday or Tuesday. He comes and sees you, helps you work out your claim forms, tells you what's allowable, tells you your nearest friendly trade commissioner, wherever you're travelling to, arranges interviews overseas for you, looks after the collection of your monies overseas. All that is done by the Department of Trade and That's what they're paid for. We pay them from public monies to do this. We don't pay them to sit there and be bureaucrats pulling $20,000 a year. We want them to work on our behalf to make us money overseas. Um, the Commonwealth system in Kent's interesting. They have 150 acres of land in which 90 people have full employment on and off. And uh, that's a rather small ratio. They say that there's an unforeseeable number of empty jobs. But at present there are 90 families on full livings on 150 acres, right? And the average amount of time worked looks like something like three weeks a year, actual occupational work. Most of the time that people have set up a lot of recreational facilities on the land. They have ping pong and other games areas. Some surprising things come out of a Commonwealth model. And for instance, it was a dairy farm and they still milk 150 cows on it. Well, four people do. Right. The income from the milk and the milk products is less than the income from the energy product of the manure. That is, it pays you to keep cows just to have cow shit. But it is only one half that of the income from the worms that feed off the material that comes through the methane digester. So if it comes to right down to hard things, keep cows by all means, but sell worms. They don't mind you going there because stuck right in the middle of the Commonwealth system is an accommodation unit where you stay and pay. Uh, it's at uh, Boar Farm, just out of Weald in Kent. How do you spell the business? B-O-R-E. And the town that's town near is in Kent, and the town is Weald, W-E-A-L-D. It's a little, little village. The present activities range from brick and tile making. Now, people really wouldn't even know the difference. They still get the mistaken impression that they're employed. See, what people go around looking for employment these days. You can almost con them to believing they're employed. After a while it will dawn on them that they are self-employed. And when that first thrill of fear passes from being self-employed, they settle down quite happily 
because they know that no matter what happens in between the service and processing and retail and primary production sectors, it's very unlikely they can lose their job because they are doing their job in relation to, in primary relation to their own group and in secondary relationship to the whole of humanity. Therefore, their job security is higher, I guess, than any other group. This proportional percentage, in case you want to know where it comes from, comes from the Mondragon region in Spain, in the Basque country, where they now have cooperatives running from the 1950s, and where all hospital services are free, all education is free, and everybody's on a 100% pension. Okay, and they say this is sweet and works beautifully, and if you crack it up like this, this is exactly what you want to do. So it's not a guesswork percentage. It's drawn from a real system that has been long-running and employs, I think, 20% of the people in the district. Now, what do we need to set out a common work model? Well, you need something like a permaculture course and a permaculture planning approach to landscape, although you needn't get it from permaculture, you can get it from a combined set of disciplines, right? But the second thing you need, and this is where you get to your services, is the capacity and inclinations that lie within your human resources. You know, who is capable of and wants to do uh, some trading or some accounting. Accounting is a service to the group. So your assessment is who is present and what land is available, and you have a land planning and a community planning job. <coughs> community planning relies on, on who can do what or who wants to do what. That's more to the point. Who, who really says, well, I wouldn't mind having a go at uh, being an uh, international trader. And obviously uh, our friend over here wants to travel, would select that because he wants to travel. I would avoid it like the plague because I have travelled and I don't want to travel again, you know. Travelling is a rotten job. You just, only when you're young you can even stand the idea of doing it, you know. So it's what you want to do as well as what is available. Now, very largely in your human resources, you can fit what people want to do into the framework of a living. Just have to think how. They want to uh, sit down, play guitar and see the world. Well, <coughs> we could probably organise it. They make a living out of that if we think hard enough. Difficult, but you can do it. There are a few people as well want to sit down, play guitar and see the world. Uh, you would then possibly appoint them your overseas dickera with your import groups so you make them the agent of your trade system. They can play guitar all the way to and from and spend a day or two signing contracts, which is in effect what, what some people do do. You'll see a lot of businessmen getting on planes. They're basically travelling guitar players. <laughs> The thing you remember when you do the ground plan is the large proportion in which you would like to break up country, that percentage that we decided is some ideal, and then the detail comes right down to the actual ground characteristic itself. The thing you never want to overlook is what is already abundant. And if that is gorse and blackberries, you've got yourself a resource or if it's uh, kudzu vine. Uh, when you look at abundance, natural abundance, 
uh, you'll find you can use it. And in the two obvious ways you can use it, you can use it straight away as biomass. <coughs> it will ferment or it will make methane, or, you know, and that turns it into energy source. And that eventually, of course, turns it into a compost and that turns it into a saleable product. Um, or you can use it for its own sake. St John's wort, for instance, which is a plague uh, weed in Victoria, has a very high value oil. It's uh, a red oil and it's distilled uh, by some people in Victoria and it's basically an anaesthetic oil used in uh, external rubs for aching joints and things. And it's very good and very expensive. Therefore, you ask yourself, what is already abundant? How can we use it? Rather than saying, what crop will we grow? It's just an outlook on life. You say, look, we've got a crop here. Uh, give you a fantastic example of that. On uh, Robins Island along here, uh, some uh, Americans own it. Uh, they're wheat growers from cent Central America. And they... Uh, they said, well, we uh, wonder what we'll do on here. We'll run beef. So it's going to be trouble running beef. We've got half a million wallaby. And they will tend to eat the grass of the beef. Now, anybody with half a million wallaby is already retired because the skins are $12 each, Tan, and the production from that would be uh, at least uh, a quarter of a million per annum at $4 is 4 million bucks. <laughs> Therefore, what in the hell did you want to muck around with beef for, from which they'd be very lucky to get $40,000 a year off the whole island? Tanned wallaby skins are $12 each. The tanning cost is $0.10 cents each. Therefore, look first in your land at what is naturally abundant and see uh, how you convert that. Either, either you do... What do you look for in a naturally abundant product? You have three strategies to look at maybe four. Now, given biomass, you'll either convert it to energy or you will convert it to a usable product, or both. Okay, if your biomass is grasshoppers, then the usable product you convert it to is trout. Now, if your biomass is blackberries, your usable product is compost, and the compost then is convertible to a more acceptable product than blackberry canes. Second strategy is, does it have an intrinsic high-value product in the abundant product? Well, what is the intrinsic high-value product, say, of blackberries? Hmm? Fragerin, which is a, a distilled fraction from the leaves, right? Which is of great use in childbirth and is uh, used quite a lot. So you research what is abundant. That saves you an awful lot of trouble now. You've got your crop. What are you going to do with it? Now, the second uh, strategy in developing common work models is how much can you superimpose on a single area? How many things can you, can you fit into an area? And particularly thinking in terms of that one increases the product of the next. So that's the other way you go about uh, common work planning. How many things can you get in water? Now you sit down with your friends and you uh, brainstorm a shallow pond and see which was the best route way to go in stocking it and how many products are you going to get out of that. The thing we're discovering, and we hark right back to our little talk on edges, 
is that uh, providing you're developing a complex system, maybe your highest product in the end comes through these throughways along the edges, not within the water, but on the edge of the water, not within the forest, but on the edge of the forest. Two of products that go like this are relatively small crops that are natural edge crops and vine crops, which uh, themselves are edge of edge occurrence and, and take up mainly aerial space, their root mass being relatively small <coughs> in terms of total yield. So look at your edges that way. Uh, flower and herb crops then. Herbage, the first two layers of the system, you know, before you're up there in the trees. Don't neglect your pathways. Uh, then um, how complex can you make your system to, to uh, get more of that edge? That's another thing. You should complex this. Now we're not worried about complexing the system. We would be very worried about if we're dealing with a single client because maintaining a complex system is too much for a family. Just as you can look at a large area containing many livings, you can just as easily transfer that to there being one, one living on many small areas. Uh, that is, if you have the right to uh, plant a few vines on a lot of small properties, uh, you can amass a living over a lot of small areas. There are excellent examples of these lie within the urban fabric. Very often, and in this group, you'll find people interested in a city farm and it's nice and valid and they work quite well and they're enjoyed by a lot of people. But you won't find anybody interested in the city as a farm and yet the real livings come from the city as farm, not from the city farm. I'll give you two city farm examples to illustrate that way of thinking. One is that Adelaide runs 30,000 sheep. It, the flock varies. It goes down to 9,000 and up to 30,000. The sheep are on hire at $6 a week per head. For what purpose? Mowing lawns. Mowing lawns, but more particularly because it's, uh, it's, it's compelled, you're compelled to do it to, to control fire break. And they're cheaper than any other methodology of creating fire break. Now, 30,000 sheep at $6 a head is a reasonable income on an average year. Quite obviously, your farm installation needs to be a shearing shed and a drenching unit, nothing else. You don't. The city is your farm. The income is largely from your sheep. Uh, in America, you also have duck hire services and goose hire services. You rent a sheep, rent a duck, rent a goose. Nobody wants to keep a bloody sheep. I mean, they stink, they get uh, liver complaints, they uh, have to be drenched, uh, have to be shorn, they get daggy. You don't want all that fuss. All you want is uh, something that eats off your lawn for a couple of weeks. And only cost you 12 bucks. And you don't want to even go and get it. So if somebody puts it there and takes it away, you're very happy. The city then, as farm, is being run in, in, in a dozen cities on livestock that I can think of. Uh, and that's expanding rapidly. Now, the second city as farm is being run by a permaculture guy. His name is John Saparovich. He runs Melbourne, and he runs Melbourne as a chestnut farm. He buys in all Melbourne's chestnuts at wholesale, and he pays $3 a pound for them. And many individual trees in Melbourne will have up to 1,500 pounds of chestnuts. 
therefore the tree is worth up to four and a half thousand. Some of the best trees, he pays four and a half thousand dollars per annum for the chestnut. Saparovic retails to the Sydney market, mainly the Italian market, and he's retailing at six dollars a pound. Sabarovich, in his first year of operation, cleared $135,000 from the city of Melbourne. He will now supply you with a grafted chestnut tree if you want to grow it. He gives you, a, he gives you your blueberries, you grow them, he buys them. He guarantees to purchase wholesale. You can sell, uh, retail yourself and pay him off for the blueberries. He's quite as happy for, uh, for that to happen. But he would like to purchase from you at, at a wholesale price because you eat all the blueberries and chestnuts you want uh, and he supplies you with a crop. Uh, now the city as farm uh, has as many overlays as a common work system. One of the big uh, missing things in Melbourne is the citrus. So the citrus production in Melbourne is enormous. It's not gathered and nobody's offering to buy the crop. Your main suppliers here are free labour, they're called school children. They'll gather all the citrus you can ever want for a wholesale price. Same with the chestnuts. They'll gather and shell them at wholesale price. You can't get that sort of labour anywhere else. Anybody's legally enabled to gather up and shell their own chestnuts and sell them. There's no legal problem about that. So when you look at the city as farm, you see thousands more livings than the city farm. City farm is something for a few hobbyists to play around on. The city as farm is a real production system which returns the surplus of the city to the city. You can sell them back the sheep, you can sell them back the wool, and you can sell them back the chestnuts and the, and the citrus fruit. This runs in such a way, of course, uh, well, in Saparovich's case, that he set up perhaps the largest and most successful chestnut selection seed sale and grafting business uh, ever set up in Australia because he now has a selection of thousands of trees. He knows the characteristics of the trees. He's grown them on from seed. He can sell you a lot of seed. Well, he'll guarantee you that the seed will grow you excellent chestnuts for Melbourne. He's also uh, grafting and setting it up and he even went to the extent, which I think ridiculous, of, of planting 15 acres of chestnuts for himself. Oh, I think he's right off his head, actually. So does he. But he's making an awful large income. He built it up within three years to a, to a retirement pension. John Zaparovich, Main Road, Sylvan, is his address. And he will supply you with excellent chestnut tree seed uh, at, I think, $30 a pound or something. He'll also plant a tree in the yard if you want to plant it, providing you water it. Now, some of those individual trees pay all the ground cost of the house in which they're placed. They pay all rates, all land tax, and give you a very handsome Christmas present too. Oh, he may have raised it. He's getting a lot. Yeah, he's seven dollars a kilo. Same same thing. He started off in the days before, before pounds. It was back in 1977 that John started, I think. The chestnuts processed, of course, are worth an awful lot of money. When you buy your turkey stuffing, which is chestnut marron glace, is it? Or marron something? Then that's a lot of money. So if you go to processing your chestnut crop, then, then you are up for a lot of money. And it turns to perfectly good flour, which is a flour of Tuscany, sweet flour. 
so you can make your bread from it. And of course, if you've got one chestnut tree that's more staple flour than you could ever use in a year, you couldn't use 1,500 pounds of flour a year. I think, I think the city as farm is a, an excellent approach to, to cities. Now, a lot of people are taking this approach in very innovative ways all across the world. And what you do is go and scan the city, obviously in Perth, one of your big crops is, uh, also one of your weeds of your wayside, which is uh, castor oil. Castor oil seeds would be a very big income earner. It's one of the highest value crops per acre of any. And there's no one collecting them in Perth because nobody has offered a wholesale price for castor oil seed. As soon as you do, every kid in town's bringing you in castor oil seeds by the pound. Yes, that's right. And of course, they might as well not be there unless they have an economic benefit to collect them. So the town's wide open. Just go for a little trot through it. You'll see a million things that you can offer a good wholesale price on, which are in demand. Right, your common work group then treat the city as farm. They themselves don't have to own land. They run complex primary production businesses within the context of the city. And of course, you, step two, step one, is you glean. You collect what already is growing. Step two, you propagate. Step three, you offer crop out to the city on a, on a guaranteed buyback basis. person who operates decides to use uh, chemical no, it need not be. Any, any more than when, when you're offering out your chestnuts, you, you will not buy chestnuts which have chemical residues. You will not allow chemical residues in this situation. That's uh, easy to do. You simply disallow purchase of anything with a chemical residue or where chemicals used, if that's what your bag is, right? Or you can guarantee it to be loaded with chemicals if that's what your bag is. In our, our place, we don't use them. No, he was saying, what if someone just uh, decided to be a, a watchman? Well, then they automatically break contract. It's as automatic as that. You're out on your ass, you know. I mean, that's what you signed up for, you know. Uh, if you want to go out and, and scatter chemical residues on an area where none are permitted, you just break contract. Contract? Yes, you do. You have total control over that. How do you know that in the 12-month period? Oh, I see what you mean in the city. You can test for chemical residues uh, and it can be a fairly specific test. It costs you a little bit to run some through. But most people are not like that. You, know, I mean, you, you want to say, it's true that 98% of people do the, what they say, 2% don't. If you want to test out to check who they are and eliminate them, great. Sweden is doing it with all food just checking all food and just refusing purchase uh, where it finds chemical residues. You can do it as a country or as an individual or as a wholesaler. Depends on what your guarantee to your client is. It's become very sophisticated and relatively cheap to test food stuffs. In fact, for a lot of people, it's, it's also free. Yes, you, you specify what you want in your contract, right? Therefore, a group within the city need not own land and it can treat the city as its farm. And it uh, rapidly becomes a fairly popular institution. Uh, point out to you it may be the way in which in the end you, you, you really do uh, change the city and it may be the only way we can do it because as everybody says, 
nobody in the city is interested in, in really self-reliance, they're interested in a buck. So we give them the buck. We save them despite themselves by building in their food under contract. That gets their buck. It also gets them, incidentally, almost as an afterthought, it also gets them into food self-reliance. They don't give a damn if they're growing a chestnut tree, they're quite happy. The kids are into it flat out. <laughs> and when the kids are into it, the parents say, OK, go for your life, put the tree in, you know, we don't mind. My word, they are, because it means a lot of difference as to whether your, your rates and your energy bills are paid off by, by some product which takes very little attention. And tree crop is ideal there for that. Also, your city is your market, so you're running your farm in your market. It's very like a gleaning program, but it hasn't got the deficiency that you need volunteers. Uh, you're making an income from gleaning. What's more, additional to a gleaning program, you're supplying crop. Gleaning program simply takes what you've got to spare. This supplies you with crop. Now, the other thing that Jim Davis is doing, the same Jim Davis I told you about who was at Bathurst Orange, he's rented all the winter swimming pools in Melbourne on which he grows his daffodil crops on rafts or all of them in his district because he figures the surface of these ponds they're ideal you know for for flower production rafted flower production you just put your pots in there in the raft constant water supply boom you get your flowers cut them sell them clean your crop off and they can hop back in in the swimming pool, siphon them out, put their bloody uh, poisons in there and go on swimming in them. Go under the summer cancer system at that point. You've got your flowers off and you're gone at the end of winter. But now you're gone, you're gone in about a fortnight's time. So there's another huge resource for you within the city. What if you took it one step further and, had, and set up your energy group and offered everybody with a swimming pool to supply them with their total house energy? from their own swimming pool, a new contract to make the change. And you do the conversion of a swimming pool into the solar pond, which is a few lengths of pipe and a bag of salt. And then you're on your energy income. Groups in the United States are going around doing house draft proofing at very low contract prices, asking only for a small proportion, that is 50% of the energy actually saved by the householder and they will continually keep that house in draft-proof order for 50% of the energy saved. And that's better than jumping up and down saying we ought to insulate houses, we ought to draft-proof them. It'd be nice if people would retrofit them, it'd be nice if they bought energy down. Make money at doing that and everybody understands what you're up to. You're making a profit, you're on contract to them, They've got to be saving 200 bucks a year on their energy bill before you pay you 100 bucks. Therefore, you're very concerned that their house is draft-proof, that their windows are double-glazed even. You know, you can afford to put quite a lot of money uh, year after year into people's homes if you're getting half the energy saved. And they're as happy as Larry. If they're saving $200 in paying... You get the energy or you get the money? You get the money from the bill saved. And that has to be presented, you know, that's how it's done. They, you, you actually assess their last five years' energy accounts. You take the current uh, rate price. Every year you assess their energy account and you take the current rate price. Half of it's yours if you've saved it. That's the way the poor people of Louisville in Kentucky are getting their energy bills down and down and down.
by 25 energy-saving teams operating independently in the city. They hope they've done 1,700 houses when I was there. They hope to do 37,000 houses and therefore make a huge energy saving for the poor and elderly but make money doing it because it's a continual bloody job. Those places are falling to pieces all the time, you know. Especially old housing. Well, we designed the series project the Permaculture Consultancy designed. It's now run by MR, MIT and Bug and a few other groups where we did the initial design of series and we found land for series. So it's a, a service to the city. Now, if you want to make a change in your city, what you do is offer cunningly constructed services. Uh, now, anyone will take advantage of those services, whether they're renting or not, because here you go, for the first time, even if you're renting, you want to save energy. And that uh, really is a matter of draft-proofing your windows and doors for your first great energy saving. Uh, then if the cost is defrayed and you come out 100 bucks or 200 bucks ahead that year, you'll do it even if you're in rented accommodation. All the systems I'm telling you about uh, have existing models, right? None of them are airy-fairy, they're real people really doing it in cities. So in the terms of a common work model, you can set up a common work group without land and then what you really concentrate on is services to land, but your income in terms of services to land may be primary production income. Now you can do exactly the same on farms and some of the most successful groups in the United States undertake pest control for farmers and they put in IPM management systems on farms integrated pest management systems on farms. And they have literally, I think, taken over whole areas like round Sacramento. They've just taken over the total management of pests on farms. And they get one, one hell of a whack of an income out of it. Because you look at a citrus grower and their pest control program now, you can only handle about 30 farms and you should specialise in something like citrus. <coughs> The total income from taking over the pest control is enormous. It can easily be $100,000 a year just running a pest control system. Well, now you do nothing else. The farmer is free at last. All he has to do is to prune and gather citrus. He don't have to worry about pests. You worry about the pest and you become a specialist in citrus pests and in, in minimum management because it's very much to your advantage if you do least. So the main, the main uh, skill of pest control is pest density monitoring and you do that with pest traps. Now when they started to do that in the apricot orchards around Sacramento, they stumbled upon a remarkable discovery. The traps they used to monitor the pest became the main control system. <laughs> and that was a happy finding that they put in a a protein salicylate, in fact, uh, what do you call it, Vegemite. And they put in a sticky substance to get the, to trap the pest so they could actually count the density on, on little cardboard containers where they all stuck on the sides. And when they reached 12 per 10 centimetre squared area, they sprayed lightly so not to kill the predators. But at that point they found when they put in enough of these traps they didn't have to spray anyhow because the bloody traps caught all the pests. So it, was it turned out to be quite beneficial. They're also very, very interested in what we do. That is, if we can tell them 
that if you vary the crop, you'll reduce the pest. It's their job to go in and vary the crop. They bring in the kiaha and plant it in the orchard and the farmer says, okay, if this is part of your pest control program, that's okay too. And if they, and uh, with, for instance, pear slug, the only effective control is, is a tree frog. And for a tree frog, you need small ponds and tadpoles. Then they go and put in the small pond and the tadpoles. And if they get uh, pear slug controlled by that method, the farmer's totally happy. What they usually do is do a trial, see if you've got pear slug control on a pear tree with, with one or two little ponds. If you got it, whack. Now your farmer's not at all worried about that, providing you keep most of this in row and his cropping is not disturbed. And you do that in discussion with farms. Once one farmer's done it, it becomes normality. If, if your pest control is chickens, you rent the chickens and shove them in under the trees. You put the chicken house in and so on. So you need not own land to be involved in primary production and in income from service. Now this is the increasing sector of income in all societies. If you take the historical migration of income systems, about 1830s or 1840s you could say primary production was greater than industrial was greater than service and then of course industrial production and service grew, primary, the value of primary production fell and the number of people employed and the sector of the economy involving fell and today you have something like this with primary production being a small part of industrial which is much smaller than service and the service sector is growing. We're even starting to talk about quaternary services, research services, not really allied directly to the industry. The information business is basically research. We, we are really slam bang this whole course. is slam bang oriented towards the information business. From that you will spin off secondary areas of employment. And it's far more important for us to understand these strategies than it is the actual plants and crops and layouts. It's much more important for us, for instance, to be operating a, the city as farm system in actuality than it is to become an expert in, say, uh, a particular uh, layout of a, of a garden. At the same time, there's no reason not to combine two things, and that is the fact that you supply people with plants and that you also advise them as to the placement of the plants in relation to energy saving. There's no reason not to do both.